And good morning once again. This is the last time you're going to hear me say this for a long time. Turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 31. As we're going to finish the book of 1 Samuel today, God willing, we'll start 2 Samuel next week. Let's just pick it up in verse 1. 1 Samuel 31, verse 1, Now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. Then the Philistines followed hard after Saul and his sons, and the Philistines killed Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malchushua, Saul's sons. The battle became fierce against Saul. The archers hit him, and he was severely wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised men come and thrust me through and abuse me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. Therefore Saul took a sword and fell on it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died with him. So Saul, his three sons, his armor-bearer, and all his men died together that same day. And when the men of Israel, who were on the other side of the valley, and those who were on the other side of the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they forsook the cities and fled, and the Philistines came and dwelt in them. So it happened the next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain that they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. And they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent word throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim it in the temple of their idols and among the people. Then they put his armor in the temple of the Astoreths and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. Now when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and traveled all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan, and they came to Jabesh and burned them there. Then they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree at Jabesh and fasted seven days. These verses record the sad end of the life of King Saul. Actually, Saul's death didn't take him by surprise. If you remember a few weeks ago when we were in chapter 28, Saul was not hearing from God anymore, so he, so he went to a medium that she would contact Samuel, the prophet who had died. I believe it wasn't her that conjured up Samuel's spirit. It was God that allowed it. Go back and listen to the study. We talked about that. Anyways, God allowed Samuel to come up from the grave to talk to Saul one last time. And in the course of that brief conversation, Samuel told Saul that he had 24 hours left to live. He said, by this time tomorrow, you're going to be with me. Maybe not in the same place Samuel was, but in death. So Saul, from chapter 28, knew he had one day basically left to live. For those of you who follow football, you know that two minutes before the end of the game, there's an automatic timeout that takes place called the two-minute warning. And the idea behind it is to give both teams time to plan the, their end-of-game strategies. It's interesting that they chose to call it a two-minute warning, <laughs> as if to say that players can get so caught up in playing the game 
they become oblivious to the fact that it's almost over. And therefore, they need to be warned. <laughs> the end is near, basically, to give them time to make final end-of-game preparations for winning. What do you think if God would attach a two-minute warning to the game of life? Or actually, I'm thinking it has to be something more practical, kind of like the 24-hour warning that God gave to Saul. I mean, this would be time to wrap things up on the earth, to make amends with people you're at odds with, to get right with God, but especially to prepare for eternity. I mean, if we lived our lives, think about this, if we lived our lives knowing that at any time, God might say to us, you have 24 hours left to live. Do you think that would affect the way you'd live your life on the earth every day? I, I know with me, if, at any, I mean, if we all got the 24-hour warning from God, all right, and at any time, little tap on the shoulder, you got 24 hours left. I would dare say that most people, not all, most people, because they knew that God would eventually whisper that at any time in their ear, most people would live their lives ready to die. Not most, not all. You're always going to have coconut heads that, you know, God tells you you got 24 hours left to live. Ugh, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to party for 24 hours, right? You know? They're going to stuff in as much sin as they can in that last 20 Drugs, sex, alcohol, they're going to party hardy till they drop dead. I really believe that would be the case with a lot of people. But um, <laughs> for most of us, I think we would handle it a little more responsibly. Now, unfortunately, even though God gave Saul a 24-hour warning, he didn't use it wisely. No, he didn't stuff the last 24 hours of his life with sin, but he didn't get his life right with God either. For Saul, the last day of his life was, guess what, business as usual. Why was that? Because Saul was a creature of earth. He was what John called in the book of Revelation an earth dweller. What does that mean? Well, we all live on the earth. But the idea of being an earth dweller is somebody that this is their only home. This is the only life that they live for. Uh, those of us who are Christians, we live on the earth, but this is not our home. We're pilgrims and sojourners. We're passing through on our way to our heavenly home. But for, there's a lot of people, though, that for them, they're earth dwellers. This is it. This is all they want. This is all they know, and so on. Saul was an earth dweller. He was someone who didn't take eternity seriously. I mean, he might have believed in it, but he didn't take it seriously. didn't live like he did. He was a man who pretty much cultivated a philosophy of life, again, like many today, which said, live for the moment, don't worry about tomorrow. It's called hedonism, right? Live for the moment, don't worry about tomorrow. Look, there's nothing in the Bible concerning Saul's life that would lead us to believe he ever cultivated an intimate relationship with God. I mean, scriptures are silent about his devotional life. He never wrote any psalms of praise to God. He never established any public worship for God. Uh, he never desired to build God a house like David. He never proclaimed any holy days of worship to the Lord. In fact, we never get any insight into the spiritual life of Saul at all. All we see is a man who gave God lip service. Oh yeah, he called on God when he needed God's help, but pretty much then lived his life for himself and did his own thing. And even after God, through Samuel, told Saul he only had one day left to live, we don't see anything from chapter 28 to 31, which covers the last 24 hours of Saul's life. 
we don't see anything to indicate he got his life right with God or made any changes at all in the way he was living. Saul was blessed by God to get a warning that he only had 24 hours left to live. Most people don't get any kind of a warning, yet he didn't make any use of it and died totally unprepared for the next life. You know, Jesus told a parable about a man who, like Saul, only lived his life for this life, you know, and died unprepared for the life to come. Turn to Luke chapter 12. I'm sure you all remember this parable. It's called the parable of the rich fool. Okay, the parable of the rich fool. Luke 12, starting with verse 15. Jesus said to them, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. Then he spoke a parable to them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater. And there I will store all my crops and all my goods. I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? Let me just stop there. The Lord Jesus was always trying to shift people's focus off of the material slash temporal and onto the spiritual slash eternal. Always. He began this parable with a pretty strict warning against coveting. Coveting is lusting, strongly desiring, in this context, material things. Material things. He said in verse 15, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. Now in the Greek it comes through a little more forceful. It comes through this way, guard yourselves against covetousness. You know, the desire to always have more of the world's stuff, you know? Guard yourself as if the devil, and we know it's true, is going to use materialism to create within us a lust for things. And be careful because if you succumb to it, it will take you away from the things that really matter, the things of God. That's why he warned us, guard yourselves against covetousness. You know, the Romans had a proverb which said that money was like seawater. <laughs> the more a man drank, the thirstier he became. It's what Paul the Apostle called the deceitfulness of riches. The deceitfulness of riches. What is that? That money can bring me happiness. John Rockefeller was asked years ago, he was a very wealthy man. Somebody asked him, Mr. Rockefeller, you got so much wealth. Why do you keep working to earn more? How much is enough? You know what Rockefeller said? Just a little more. Just a little. That's the deceitfulness of riches. If I can just acquire a little more money, power, stuff, I'm going to be happy. And so people pursue that goal all their lives, and they no sooner achieve one goal, then they find happiness is elusive and they want to go even farther. I mean, I think Luke 12, 15 is a very valuable verse for many Christians today who are consumed with the desire for earthly riches and material things. In fact, 
So many Christians are so consumed with these things that they've sought out for themselves preachers and teachers uh, to preach what some have called the prosperity gospel, which sanctifies greed by saying, it's your spiritual birthright as children of God to be wealthy. See, God's wealthy, isn't he? The earth is the Lord, the fullness thereof. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. You're his kids. Why would God want you driving a Volkswagen? You're a child of the king. You should be driving a Cadillac. Why would God want you living in a measly condo? You should be living in a mansion on earth. You're his kids. It's your birthright to be wealthy. Well, you know what? That's not a biblical doctrine. In fact, it's the exact opposite. It's the antithesis of what Jesus was teaching here in the parable of the rich fool. As we read this parable, two things stand out about this man. Two things. First of all, he never saw beyond himself. He never saw beyond himself. I don't think there's another parable in all the teachings of Jesus that contain as many personal pronouns as this one does. Kind of reminds me of a kind of a dumb poem I heard years ago. You know, sometimes things stick with you. By the way, I can still sing word for word the theme song from the Beverly Hillbillies. Don't ask me why. I can still sing that to you. There are things that I just don't forget, and this dumb poem was one of them. It goes like this. I had a little tea party this afternoon at three. It was very small, three guests and all, just I, myself, and me. Myself ate all the sandwiches while I drank up the tea. It was also I who ate the pie and passed the cake to me. Now, it's a dumb little poem. You'll never forget it. <laughs> but listen, this is the way many people live their lives today. They're completely wrapped up in themselves and their pleasures without any thought for anybody else. Apparently, it never dawned on this guy. He could take some of his abundance and give it to those who had nothing. I mean, you don't get anything from the parable that he thought about anybody but himself. He had all this extra crops and wealth. It never dawned on him that he might be able to share some of that with others in need. He reflects the mentality of so many in our culture today. The why should I, what's in it for me mentality? Why should I help somebody else? What's in it for me? How about the joy of just helping somebody? You know? But it's everywhere, this mentality. It's a definite sign that we are in the last days. Jesus said, in the last days, the love of many would grow what? cold. Paul prophesied about the heart of man in the last days. I'll just read it to you. You don't have to turn there. 2 Timothy 3 verses 1 to 4. He said, you should know this, Timothy, that in the last days there will be very difficult times. For people will love only themselves and their money. They will be boastful and proud, scoffing at God, disobedient to their parents, and ungrateful. They will consider nothing sacred, they will be unloving and unforgiving. They will slander others who have uh, and have no self-control. They will be cruel and hate what is good. They will betray their friends, be reckless, be puffed up with pride, and love pleasure rather than God. Folks, that's the evening news. We're living in the last days. So first of all, this guy never saw beyond himself. Secondly, he never saw beyond this life. He never saw beyond this life. There seems to be an attitude, the attitude of so many today, who are so consumed with the things of this life, they have little or no concern for the life to come, which, by the way, is going to be forever. Isn't it ridiculous 
how people focus, put all their focus and energy into this little span of time we call life. What is it, 40, 50, 60, 70 years maybe? If you could live to be 120. I mean, that's a drop in the bucket when compared to eternity. And yet for so many people, this life is absolutely their focus. They don't see beyond this life at all. There's another story I heard of a conversation between a young, ambitious man and an older, wiser man who understood what was really important in life. The older man asked the young man what his plans were for his life. The young man said, I will learn my trade. And then what, said the older man? I will start a business. And then what? I'll make my fortune. And then what? I suppose I'll grow old, retire, and live off my money. And then what? Well, someday I'll die. And then what? I wish more young people would think about that. But there's a lot of older folks who aren't thinking that way at all either. Look, it's very interesting to me to see how the man in the parable viewed himself and then to see how God viewed him. You know, we can really be self-deceived. I mean, the worst deception is self-deception. When we can't see ourselves honestly, but God sees us. God knows exactly what's going on. I, I, it's interesting to me to, to see how this guy viewed himself. Verse 19 tells us. I mean, he viewed himself as being on easy street, with not a care in the world. He felt that he could retire and live for many years on the fortune he'd amassed. And his philosophy of life was going to be, take it easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. I'll live the rest of my life just having a party. Now that's how he viewed himself looking at life from the perspective of earth and the temporal. Unfortunately for him, God never looks at our lives from the earthly. He is always looking at our lives from the eternal. That's why if God has to sacrifice some of our earthly comfort as Christians now to give us the best eternity possible, he'll do that. Because he's always wanting to work for our eternal best, not our earthly comfort. And he's always trying, as Jesus tried to elevate people's thinking in his day, he's still doing that today. What did Paul say in Ephesians? That he has seated us uh, with Christ in where? Heavenly places. Why did he do that? Because he wants us to view this life from a heavenly perspective. He wants us to see life not from earth level, but from heaven's perspective. Because if he can get us to look at life through heaven's perspective, we will live our lives for eternity's cause, not for time. But God, you know, this guy patting himself on the back, oh, you've done it now. Boy, you've really gained a lot of wealth. You can sit around and just take it easy and party the rest of your life. And God, unfortunately, didn't, uh, wasn't patting this guy in the back. He saw his life from an eternal perspective. In verse 20, God said to him, fool, fool, this night your soul will be required of you. You're going to die. Then whose things will be those things be which you have? And then who's going to get all the stuff you worked so hard to get is the idea, Okay. Uh, apparently, some older folks have figured that out, and I've seen bumper stickers that read, you know, we're spending our children's inheritance. Uh, okay? I mean, they've caught on, all right? And working so hard for what? To leave it all to my dumb kids? You know? Going to squander it away? I've, I'm going to enjoy it. I can't fault them for that, you know, especially the older I get. But, uh, 
But this is how God saw this man's life. I mean, the world was probably trumpeting his praise. What a wise business guy. Look at these amassed the fortune. God said, you fool. You fool. It's also interesting that this man never actually got the chance to build bigger barns, did he? He never really got the chance to enjoy his retirement. He only thought to do those things, okay? It was only in his mind. This was his plan for the future, a future he never lived to see. God calls him a fool because he made all these plans for his future life on the earth, not realizing, of course, how could he? Not realizing that his time on earth was just about up. God says, this night, your soul will be required of you. And he was totally unprepared um, to face death and the life to come. Now, Jesus then gives the moral of the story. Verse 21, so is he, or she, of course, who lays up treasure for himself, herself, and is not rich toward God. Look, Jesus is saying, that everyone is a fool who uses their life to make money and lay up for themselves all kinds of material things on the earth, but is spiritually bankrupt toward God and will spend eternity in hell. I mean, isn't that the utter, I mean, how utterly foolish is that? To plan for retirement, but not for eternity. And that's why this man and everyone like him are called fools. They're fools because they live their lives, listen, as though this life is all there is and self is all that matters and there is nothing beyond death. I want you to notice that the Lord didn't call this man evil. He didn't call him evil for working hard and gaining wealth. There's nothing evil about hard work and enjoying the fruits of your labor. That's not evil. The Lord called him a fool. Because he only stored up for himself treasures on earth, but laid up nothing in heaven for his eternity. And the reason, guys, was because he was a materialist. He was a materialist. If he couldn't see it, touch it, taste it, or smell it, it either wasn't real or it didn't matter to him. Materialists aren't concerned about spiritual things like heaven. And therefore, leave this world unprepared for eternity. Uh, how many men and or women do you know who have worked hard all their lives. I mean, they've worked overtime. They've worked Saturdays, Sundays, to lay up for themselves a nice little nest egg for their retirement, only to retire one day and die the next day. Do you know I actually knew somebody like this? It was a truck driver. I worked with truck drivers for years before I got saved. This guy worked overtime. He was a hard-working guy, wanted to save up for his retirement. He retired on Friday, was cutting his lawn on Saturday, dropped out of a heart attack. Look, the guy in this parable had no idea his life would be over in a few hours. King Saul had no excuse. I mean, he was given a 24-hour warning, but it didn't seem, he didn't make any use of it at all. Why? Again, because he was too wrapped up in living his life on earth than to think about the life to come. The thing about it was that God, like he called the guy in the parable, you know, the rich fool, in the called him a fool. God didn't call Saul a fool in 1 Samuel. You know why? Because Saul called himself a fool. Remember in chapter 26 when Saul was summing up his whole life? 
to David? He said, I have sinned and played the fool and erred exceedingly. Remember when we talked about that a few weeks ago? We said, look, you don't want that epitaph written on your tombstone. You know, because an epitaph kind of succinctly sums up your life. You don't want your life summed up with the words, I played the fool and erred exceedingly. I've entitled this message, Life's Two-Minute Warning. A facetious title, since we don't get a two-minute warning. Or even a 24-hour warning in life. We have time to kind of, you know, wrap things up and prepare for eternity. But by the way, let me just say this. Please, don't wait till you're on your deathbed to prepare for eternity. But we don't get that, do we? We don't get a two-minute warning. We don't get a 24-hour warning. Therefore, guys, listen, we must live as if each day might be our last. Forget the warning. Forget the warning. God tells us that we are to live every day as if this day could be my last day on the earth. You know, it's funny how our problems and all our concerns, think about this morning what you're concerned with, what really has been eating at you and, and, and weighing on your mind, you know, and, and you know, and it, it, there are a variety of things we could, you know, if we went around the room, you know, um, we're talking, you know, all these things we get so consumed with, they seem so important until we stand before the doctor and he says, you've only got about six weeks left to live. Then all of a sudden, none of it matters. Unless, of course, you're worried about your family. Of course, they always matter. But if you're worried about things, retirement, you know, where am I going to get money to put, uh, you know, new tires on the car or pay for my kids' college? I'm not saying those things are, you know, stupid things to be concerned about. But realize that when suddenly you hear you've only got a few weeks or a few months left to live, how does that affect what you're so concerned about right now? Completely changes everything, doesn't it? Somehow everything I was so concerned about, everything that was so important to me, all of a sudden uh, doesn't really seem to matter as I'm brought face to face with death and eternity. Of course, most of you in this room know that our brother Dan Jordan went home to be at the Lord about a year ago, June 23rd. Dan had been battling cancer for a couple of years. And um, I remember one day, he always came to men's prayer meeting, and sometimes he would come early and we'd just sit and talk before anybody else came. You know, Dan had a place in, uh, in Minnesota. He liked to go up there and kind of putz around. And then he got the news that uh, he had cancer, and it looked pretty bad. He said to me, Pastor, he said, when I got that news, all of a sudden everything that I was so worried about, so concerned, assumed with, didn't matter anymore. All of a sudden now it was my walk with God and my relationship with him. That's all that seemed to matter to me. Well, that's, that's common, isn't it? Let me just say this to you. Whenever you are confronted with the reality of your death and the prospect of entering into eternity, I'll tell you this, at that point, whatever you've poured yourself, your life into, as Jesus said, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, for wherever your treasures are there, your what? Heart will be also. And if my heart is with God and the things of God, I'm going to be laying up for myself treasures in heaven. If my heart is on the earth, I'll lay up for myself treasures on the earth if this life is really all-consuming to me. But I'll tell you what, whatever you've poured yourself into, whatever was important to you on this life, well, that will determine how you face the prospect of death and eternity. 
Can I help you with this? Because Paul helped us all with it. You don't have to turn there, but it comes out of Philippians chapter 1, verse 21. Paul gives us a little valuable test to use, uh, you know, fill in the blanks, okay? Remember what Paul said? He said, for to me to live is blank, and to die is blank. I'll leave those blank. You've got to fill them in. Let me tell you how I know a lot of people would fill them in, okay? Many people in our culture would say, well, for me to live is money, and to die is to leave it all behind. Or, for me to live is fame, and to die is to be forgotten. Some would say, for me to live is power, and to die is to lose it all. Think about it, guys. Only Paul expressed what's involved in facing death and eternity with great joy. He said, for me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Because only when you live for Jesus will there be rewards waiting for you in heaven for eternity. Can't take it with you, but you can send it on up ahead. Right? You can't take it with you, but you can send it on up ahead by using it to build the kingdom of God. For me to live is Christ. To die is gain. There's only one life. It'll soon be passed. And only that which is done for Jesus Christ will last. Guys, look. At some point, all of us are going to have to face the reality of death. And we won't be as fortunate, probably, as Saul, who got a 24-hour warning. We won't have any advance warning. A heart attack or a car accident could take any one of us today, God forbid. It could happen when you least expect it. Young people think, well, I've got plenty of time. It's not always the case. You can walk into a, as violent as our society has gotten, you can walk into a convenience store to buy a gallon of milk, walk in on a robbery, and that person could end your life today. The Bible says our lives are like a puff of smoke. They're here today, and they're gone tomorrow, and tomorrow is not promised to anyone. This is why it really doesn't matter, guys, if God gives us a 24-hour warning to tie up loose ends or make amends with friends or family that we're at odds with or even to get our life right with God. We should live every day as if this could be our last day. We should always be ready for this life to come to an end. And the first thing you do is make sure your life is right with God. And the first thing you do when it comes to that is make sure You've given your heart and life to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Make sure you've said to Jesus Christ, I want you to come into my heart and take control, Lord. I want you to be my master. I want to live for you from this moment on. That's the first thing you do. Oh, but I have church. I was baptized and confirmed and, you know, all these things. That's religion. God doesn't want religion from you. He wants a relationship with you. That can only come by giving your heart to Jesus. When you give your heart to Jesus, you are then born of the Spirit. You are a child of God. You have a place waiting in heaven that will never fade away. But you have to give your heart to Jesus. You have to give Him control of your life. And if you're a Christian here this morning, and you're involved in some things you shouldn't be, you know what they are. Get your life right with God. Get your life right with God. Whatever it might be, 
Don't let another date pass. Get Go home and, and on the way home, confess your sins and ask God for forgiveness. You want to be in fellowship with God. Because, you know, he's not going to tap you on the shoulder and say you got 24 hours. But he will blow the trumpet and say, come up here right now. When the rapture happens, right? John said, many Christians are going to be ashamed at his appearing. I don't want to be ashamed of his appearing. I don't want to have regrets, you know. So first thing you can do is make sure your life is right with God. Second thing you can do is make sure that the people that are closest to you know that you love them. And if you're at odds with any of them, spouse, children, parents, siblings, or any other family member especially, reconcile with Make it right. Reconcile with them. You don't want to have any regrets if you were to leave, if God took you, or if God took them. You know, and then your, the rest of your life you're like feeling sorry and guilty that you didn't make things right before they died. Look, my dad passed away 25 years ago. My mom passed away two and a half months ago. And I can honestly say, though I miss them dearly, both of them, I was on good terms with both my parents when they passed. I have no regrets. There is no unresolved conflict that never got resolved. Okay? I mean, my conscience is clear. My dad was a good man. He worked two and three jobs to provide for my mom and his five kids. I had nothing but respect for my dad. And my mom, one of the greatest moms in the world. I mean, we adored her as her children. She made our childhood wonderful growing up. Always made sure we had the best holidays. It was a wonder, always, you know, baked and cooked. And it was wonderful in my house. My mom was a great mom. So I have no regrets. I have no regrets. And I know I'm going to see both of them again someday. Look, can I just admonish you because we're done. Start living your life right now with the proper perspective and priorities. I mean, don't wait until you're brought face-to-face -face with that to realize what's really important and I really should stop being mad at uh, my you know, mom or my dad or my brother or, or sister or whatever it might be. Now that I've only got a few days left to live or a few weeks, I, I really I need to get this right. Don't, don't wait till that point. Get it right right now. Guys, always be ready to meet God and say goodbye to the people you love on earth with a clear conscience. I'll end with this. I can't remember if it was Augustine or Wesley. There's <laughs> a big gap of time there. Uh, I can't remember if it was Augustine or Wesley that was asked the question by someone, if they only had one day left to live, how would they spend it? He said, I'd spend the day taking care of my garden. The person asking the question found that answer odd and not a little indifferent. So he asked him to clarify why he would spend the last day of his life on earth tending his garden. Here's what he said. He said, well, I've always lived my life in such a way that God has always been first, and I therefore have no regrets in my relationship with him, nor do I need to get anything right with him before I die. Secondly, he said, I've always lived in such a way that I have treated my fellow man with kindness, benevolence, and honesty. So I have no need to confess any sin to anyone I know or ask them for forgiveness for some wrong I have done to them or make any, anything right with man before I die. Therefore, I just think I like to tend my garden on the last day of my life here on earth. Wow. When I first heard that, I thought, 
there's a man who didn't need a 24-hour warning before dying. He lived ready to die. He lived ready to die. Now, let me just say this. There are some lessons in the Bible that God says, see this person? See what they did here? Do that. They're a good example. Follow their example. And then you have guys like Samson, Saul. The guy says, see that guy? Big line, red slash, don't do that. Okay? Learn from his mistakes. You don't want to go that route. Today we learn from the mistakes of a man who focused all his energy on this life. And even though God gave him a great blessing to tell him you had 24 hours left to live, he could have got his life right with God. Now, maybe he did, I don't, but I don't see it here. He was so wrapped up in time, even when he was confronted with eternity, he, wasn't, he didn't make any changes. May God give us grace not to live that way. And right now to say, well, Lord, I'm not looking for some 24-hour warning, but I do know that my life could be over today. And I want to live my life in such a way as I'm always ready to meet you and to say goodbye to the people I love without any regrets. May God give us the grace to be able to do that. Father, we thank you so much for your word, Lord, because again, Lord, your word teaches us so many things by um, comparison, things that we should do, and then by contrast, things that we shouldn't do. Father, we don't want to live our lives as Saul did. He had so many opportunities for greatness but he squandered them because he was a man of earth, not a man of heaven. Give us a heart, Lord, for eternity. That, Lord, we, we look at life not in terms of how much I can acquire on this earth, but how much I can lay up in heaven. Give us grace to do that, Lord, to live our lives with no regrets, to use our time wisely, that when we finally see you face to face, we'll hear you say, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful in a few things. Now enter into the joy of your Lord. We long to hear those words. Until then, Lord, give us grace to live for you without regrets. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.